Good morning, family of God. I'm very excited to dig in this text of scripture with you today because Jesus is speaking some words that provide us at the same time a much needed challenge and a very profound encouragement. So I'm eager to dig into the word with you, but first, I want to give God praise for a couple of things. Today, for the second week in a row, we get to celebrate a baptism. So, yeah, we can cheer. You can cheer again when I tell you who. So, so last week we got to celebrate with Mondo, and today, where is the Angel? There he is. Angel's in the back. Today, Angel's getting baptized. Let's cheer one more time for Angel. Awesome to see what God is doing in the hearts of our youth. We love you guys and believe in you. Uh, the other praise is I just want to give you a quick update. The last couple of weeks we told you that we are, uh, we were preparing to send a number of college students to Colorado for a discipleship conference. And they are on the road now. They'll be arriving shortly. They've been driving overnight. And uh, so we, there's a lot of those college students that went. But we told you, we tell them just to sign up whether they have the money to go or not. And we will pray. And we gave you guys some opportunities to give. And I want to praise God for what he did in your hearts, because not only did he provide all the funds for all those students to go to Colorado for a week, but he provided a little extra, so Gavin has a head start on next Spring Breaks Discipleship Conference. So can we praise God for that also? I appreciate your generosity. And I want to pray one more time. Jared just prayed a prayer that stirred my heart, but I just really want us to have hearts that are ready to hear what Jesus has to say this morning. So would you one more time bow with me? And let's get our hearts still and quiet before the Lord, and then we'll dig in. Our Father in heaven, we want to say collectively what Levi taught Samuel to say. Speak, Lord, your servants are listening. And the text of scripture that we just prayed a moment ago from Psalm 95 reminds us that we need to listen with the right heart. Sometimes, God, our hearts get hard and our ears get clogged. And so we just pray for the help of your Holy Spirit to hear your word rightly. I pray that you'd help me to speak it. Not only accurately, but with anointing power from your spirit. Help us to remember, help us to understand, help us to trust, help us to obey, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our text of scripture is inviting us to think seriously about three words that are at the heart of what it means to be a Christian. And those are these three little words. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. That's at the heart of Christian discipleship. Some of y'all know the verse, Romans chapter 10, verse 9, which says, If you confess with your mouth that, what does it say? If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's what it means to be a Christian. We look at Jesus, 
the Son of God who died on the cross for our sins and rose again, we put our faith in Him, we say, Jesus is Lord, and we believe in Him in our hearts. And this confession changes everything. It's a deeply personal thing. It's got to be in our hearts. But it's not just a private thing. It's a public thing. Which is why six chapters to the right in Luke chapter 12, Jesus is going to say this, verses 8 and 9. I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man also will acknowledge him before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. Jesus is saying something very profound here. Those who truly confess that Jesus is Lord before other people here and now, the day is coming in which we're going to get to heaven and he is going to say in front of myriads of angels, that one is mine. That's my child. That's my disciple. That's the confession we want to hear. First Corinthians tells us that this little phrase, Jesus as Lord, is our criterion of discernment if you want to know the difference between real spirituality and fake spirituality. Because there's lots of spirits that try to influence our life, not just the Holy Spirit, right? 1 Corinthians 12 says this, verse 3, Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed, and no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except in the Holy Spirit. The authentic work of the Holy Spirit is always leading us to make this confession, Jesus is Lord. And when we say those words, it affects everything about how we see ourselves and and about how we see Jesus and how we read the Gospels. You can read through the Gospels, the story of Jesus over and over and never really get it if your heart hasn't got to the place of really understanding that Jesus is Lord. When we read the teaching of Jesus, we're not just reading the counsel of a wise spiritual teacher. The words of Jesus have authority because he's Lord. When we read about the miracles of Jesus, we need to not make the mistake of thinking this is like other prophets whom God gives power in some situations to do miracles for God's glory. When Jesus calms the sea or raises the dead or heals the leper or opens the eyes of the blind or multiplies loaves and fishes or walks on the water, what he's displaying to us is that he is the Lord of all creation. This confession that Jesus is Lord especially needs to shape the way that we think about those central events of the gospel narrative. The death of Jesus. The death of Jesus is not a failed idealist suffering and being defeated. Here's what's happening on the cross. The Lord of life. From whom no one can take his life. The one who gives life to all people is freely laying down his life. He's not being defeated. He's defeating death. He's dying because he loves us. And I just got to say, on Time Change Sunday, your neighbor needs you to tell them that Jesus loves them. So turn to your neighbor real quick. Tell them, Jesus loves you this morning. We're all a little extra sleepy, but where the flesh is weak, the spirit is willing. I'm not just talking about you. I'm a little sleepy up here. Your boy already had a little more coffee than is recommended this morning. But we got Holy Spirit power and caffeine flowing through the veins right now. And what I'm trying to say is, 
When you understand Jesus is Lord, the cross takes a new meaning because what we're recognizing is the God of invincible life said, I love each and every one of them so much that I'm going to pay the price that they deserve to pay so they can be free. And then the resurrection of Jesus means that it worked. The cords of death have been broken. To say Jesus is Lord is at the heart of Christian faith. It's also means that we need to take seriously what Jesus says when he says he's going to come back again. It will happen. Jesus will return in glory to judge the living and the dead. Jesus will return in glory to set everything right. So if you believe it, let me hear you say, Jesus is Lord. But then verse 46 of our text is Jesus lovingly confronting his disciples, asking us to think about how much we believe what we just said. Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? These verses are the conclusion of a famous sermon Jesus preached, which we've been studying for the last five weeks, called the Sermon on the Plain. And in this sermon, Jesus has made some wonderful promises to his disciples, but he's also given them some very radical commands, which we've been talking about, like, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Give to everyone who asks from you. Be merciful as your Father is merciful. Judge not. Condemn not. Forgive. Jesus has been saying these words to his disciples. And now he's saying, you call me Lord. That's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, someone who calls Jesus Lord. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? He's saying, you say, Lord, do you love your enemies? You say that I'm Lord. Do you condemn and judge one another? Or do you forgive and encourage one another? You say that I'm Lord. Do you give generously? Do you serve the vulnerable the way that I taught you to? Is your... Faith, a living faith that gets worked out in your life, is it an active faith or is it the kind of dead faith that James warns us about in James chapter 2? A lot of folks take the name of the Lord in vain, not just by using the name of Jesus like a swear word, okay? We shouldn't do that either. We need to honor that name with our lips. But what I'm saying is, if we call him Lord, and then disregard his commandments in our day-to-day life, we're taking his name in vain. Now, the truth is, all of us have fallen short of our confession at times, and we need God's grace. Anybody want to admit you need God's grace? We've all fallen short of that, and he's very gracious. He's such a forgiving and loving Lord. But he wants us to think seriously about confessing his lordship, not just with our lips, but with our hearts and with our lives. And so he tells us this little parable to illustrate what's at stake. Let's look at it again. Verses 47 to 49. Everyone who comes to me and hears my word and does them, I will show you what he is like. 
He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. If you want to catch a title for your sermon, my title is Unshakable. Unshakable. Jesus is saying, you could be unshakable, church. But on the other hand, the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. The basic meaning of the parable is simple. Your foundation really matters. He's comparing your life to a house and causing you to think, what are you building your life on? Your foundation really matters. Or here's another way to say it. Two houses can look the same. They can look fine and everything's cool until a storm comes and the floodwaters start to rise. And then when the storm comes and the floodwaters start to rise, the foundation or lack thereof is revealed. And it turns out that it really matters what you're building upon. So everybody in here, here's the question Jesus is putting in front of us. What's your foundation? What is the foundation of your life? And I want you to pay close attention to the difference between the two kinds of people Jesus is describing. One built the house on the rock. One built the house in the sand. Very different results when the flood comes. But who are these people? Who do they represent? Look at verse 47 and 49 again. Verse 47. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words. Verse 49. But the one who hears and does not do them. I want you to notice both groups hear the words of Jesus. That's what they have in common. Both groups hear the words of Jesus. So you're at church today, you're the remnant, spring break, time change Sunday, and you're still here. Praise God. Look at you. There you go. But I want you to understand, everybody Jesus is talking to was already at church listening to the word. He's he's talking to an assembly of disciples who call him Lord. All of y'all come and listen to the word, but what's the difference? The difference is their response to the word. They both show up at church, but one group hears the word and then goes and lives however they want to live. The other group, the text says, they do two things. They come to Jesus. Do you hear that invitation, church? The word of God is not just some abstract principles for life. It's the person of Jesus saying, come to me. Come to me, I will give you life. Come to me, I will give you rest. They come to Jesus And then they do the word. They act. They obey. The difference between dead faith, which says, I believe in Jesus and believes like the demons believe. The demons know he's the son of God. But they don't trust him. They don't come to him. They don't obey him. And living faith, the faith of disciples, that we entrust our souls to him. We follow him. We obey him. That's the difference. And the floods reveal our foundation. Now, 
what do these floods represent? What is that about in the parable? Jesus doesn't spell it all out here, which I think means we're at liberty to use our Bible-formed imaginations here. What are the storms? What are the floods? Pain and suffering can be a kind of flood, can't they, church family? I think we've all had experiences where life is going smooth and we say certain things and then pain hits us. And we find out what we really believed. Our foundation is revealed for better or for worse. Broken relationships or sickness or whatever it may be. Pain, suffering in life, that can be a kind of flood. Temptations, cultural change can hit us and reveal what's going on. I just need to be honest. I I grieve right now uh, because there's some cultural changes which you all know about. You don't need to tell me. You don't need me to tell you about. But that they're revealing sometimes lack of foundation in the lives of people who have said Jesus is Lord for a long time. Let me just speak to you. I don't speak from a place of condemnation, but really just a place of love. If you're wrestling with this, it's something that's been grieving my heart lately. There's a something in the air culturally where there's like a stylized way to say, I'm not going to follow Jesus faithfully anymore, that allows you to take kind of a moral high ground. You know what I'm talking about. And because I could critique the way some Christians are hypocritical, I can make it sound like I have the moral high ground. But listen, let's just be honest. Jesus, the Son of God, lived the most upright, righteous, loving life that has ever lived. And then died on the cross for our sins. And there is nothing morally praiseworthy about denying Him. And, and one of the things that grieves me especially is hearing people say, you know, I tried out Christianity. I gave it my everything. I was sincere. I tried it out and it didn't work for me. And beloved, I just got to tell you, I just got to speak honestly. Can I keep it 100 this morning? I'm going to do it either way. So. If you're feeling that way, if you're thinking that way, those statements, I tried out Christianity and it didn't work for me, so I'm quitting, are self-contradictory. They don't make any sense. Because here's what it means to try out what Jesus said. It means you surrender to him completely. You hold fast to him. You trust all of his promises. You obey all of his commands. When you stumble, you get back up and say, Lord, save me. And you keep holding fast to him until you die. People that do that can say, I tried. If we... Deny him before we get to the end of that journey. We didn't try. I'm starting to feel like Yoda up here. Do or do not. There is no try, right? Here's the thing. Jesus calls for total surrender. And here's what I I promise you. I can't prove it. And I want to ask you, can you disprove it? I promise you that the words of Jesus are true, which means everybody who surrenders to Jesus and trusts his promises and seeks to walk in his commands, and actually does it all the way till they die, just found a flood that revealed their foundation was real, and they know Jesus is true. He's Lord. They know it. 
Cultural change, temptations can be a kind of flood that reveals our foundation or lack thereof. And if what we're recognizing is we don't have a foundation, the good news is we have a gracious Savior who says, come to me, come to me. Let's begin again. Hey, there's one big storm and flood we're all going to face, which is death. We're all going to die. And that's going to reveal our foundation. And of course, perhaps maybe the main thing Jesus has in mind, he's been teaching the people that he has come to turn the world upside down. He knows he's about to die on the cross for their sins and rise again. And then one day he's going to return. And when Jesus comes back, he's going to overthrow all the forces of evil forever and vindicate those who have trusted in him and set all things right. It's going to be a good day. But I think Jesus is saying, when I come, it's going to come like a storm, which is going to reveal what is true. Jesus is pleading with us. He's looking at you with love in his eyes and saying, don't play games. Don't play games when you say that I'm the Lord. Jesus loves you. And he wants you to build your life safely on the rock. And the word of God bids me to speak very clearly to us all this morning. It's it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. Storms are going to come, church family. Floods are going to rise. Jesus is going to come back. Most of us probably are going to die before he does, but I don't know. It could be today. He could come back today. And we need to build our houses on the rock. This is a sober warning. But there's also a great encouragement here. Because Jesus says to us, if you come to me, hear my words and do them, your life will be unshakable. Everybody say unshakable. Look again at... That verse, what's the verse? That's 48. What does it say about the one who trusts him? When a flood rose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it. Because it had been well built. There's a promise here, church family. If you trust in Jesus, when suffering comes, you'll be unshakable. Because of Jesus. When temptation and cultural change come... You'll be unshakable because of Jesus. When death comes, you'll be unshakable. When the Lord returns in glory to make all things new, you'll be unshakable. Now, church, I don't want us to get it twisted. This is not saying you've got to obey all the commandments and do everything right in order to get God to love you. Okay? Did God start loving you after you obeyed him or before? None of us ever would have thought about obeying him if he didn't already love us. God showed his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. Romans 5, 8. And the Bible is very clear that forgiveness, justification, is a gift of grace that we receive by faith. It's not saying you've got to earn my acceptance, you've got to earn my love. But he is challenging us to think about what it means to be a people of faith. If you, if you trust in the Lord, by grace he forgives your sin and by grace he renews you. By grace he changes your heart. By grace, he frees you from continuing in a self-destructive path of sin and frees you for a life of love and faith and obedience. 
That's what he's talking about. Now, as I've been thinking about this, I couldn't stop thinking about one of my spiritual role models. So, Jared, if you could put our little picture on the screen. or Zach, I can't tell. I can only see the top of y'all's heads back there in the sound. But... Is that Zach? Give it up for Zach, everybody. Some, some of y'all know John Perkins. Uh, I love John Perkins. I love this man on the screen. And I've only met him, I don't know, four or five times in my life. But through those brief interactions and through hearing his teaching and reading John Perkins over many years, he's had a deep, deep impact in my life. But as I was thinking about what does it mean to trust Jesus in a way that makes you unshakable, I thought of this man. John Perkins, for those that don't know, grew up in Mississippi. He was the son of a sharecropper. His mother starved to death while she was nursing him. They were very poor. Raised by his grandmother. And his brother was a war veteran who was killed by a police officer. It was a racial incident. After suffering a great deal in the Jim Crow South, he moved to California and uh, got a good job. He only had a fifth grade education, but he worked hard to take care of his family. And he was succeeding financially. He had a big house, 12 rooms, he said. And uh, while he was there, some people from a church shared the gospel with his daughter. And he came, her, his, his daughter came to know Christ, and she invited him, and he heard Galatians 2.20, and God took that verse of scripture and used it to set his heart on fire, which says, uh, it is, what does Galatians 2.20 say? Somebody tell me. I'm not quizzing you, I just actually forgot how it started right now. <laughs> I've, been cru- there it is. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. And gave himself for me. And when he came to understand for the first time, what does it mean that Jesus loves me? It just changed his life. He got on fire for the Lord. He he, uh, started studying the Bible all the time. He started going into some prisons, sharing the gospel and mentoring youth. And he talked about seeing some kids in the prison system and, and thinking that could so easily have been me. He was so thankful for God. And he was winning. He was winning. During the civil rights era, he was succeeding financially. He was growing spiritually. He had a great family. He was happy. And then he felt like the Lord said, go back to Mississippi. Now, that's one of those moments that will reveal if you believe he's Lord or not, isn't it? So he said, yes, Lord. He had to wrestle with it for a while. He actually got so sick that he almost died and was convinced that God was disciplining him. And he went back to Mississippi. And when he got to Mississippi, he began sharing the gospel and he began discipling people. He was obeying the commands of his master to make disciples. And he led many people to Jesus and he was training. He had a preaching cohort going on in that community. And he was doing what Jesus said, giving to everyone who had need. They were starting so many mercy ministries, doing awesome community development work. They began advocating for justice, just like Jesus taught. And then that's when things started going sideways and he ended up getting wrongfully arrested and tortured almost to death by some racist police officers. And in that moment, he he had a time that he describes as his second conversion. Uh, Because he, he said, I've heard him say multiple times that after he had been tortured almost to death by people who were supposed to be upholding the law for him, demanding equal treatment under the law, he said, if I had a nuclear grenade, I would have pulled the pin. 
I was just so angry. But there, there, God sent some white nurses who loved him while he was recovering in the hospital. And he said that they used him to bring him back to Jesus again. And he decided, if I'm going to be a follower of Jesus, I've got to not just say he's Lord, but I've got to obey his command to love my enemies. He said God started to change his heart to think, what has been the experience of poor white people in Mississippi that they feel so disenfranchised that they get some sense of empowerment by treating me this way? And he said, from now on, one of the things I'm going to do for the rest of my life is to love poor white people. He just kept choosing over and over to obey. And, and John Perkins' story involved a lot of other suffering. He's lost two sons. His wonderful wife, Vera May, passed away a couple years ago. But the last time I saw him, or this might not have been the last time, but one of the recent times when I saw him, what was amazing to me is he wasn't looking back all of, at all of those lives with regret. He was filled with joy. And he said, a lot of old people are always talking about the past. I want to be an old person that's looking at the future saying, what is God going to do next and how can I be a part of it? Don't you want to be like that, church? That's called being unshakable. Everybody say unshakable. The, the one thing that I heard him being really concerned about, he says, the older I get and the closer I get to standing face to face with Jesus, I'm just more conscious of my sin and the way it can hurt people. I don't want to sin. I want to stay close to Jesus. It's an unshakable faith. This man has faced many storms and many floods. And he's been steadfast. Why? Well, probably half of the time I've ever heard him speak, at some point during the talk, he erupted in, in his favorite song, which is this one. Some of y'all know the words. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. That's why I couldn't stop thinking about him this week. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. Saints, Jesus gave his life for us. Because he loved us. He rose again victorious. There's no love deeper than his love. There's no power greater than his power. Can we trust him, church? We can trust him. And trusting him means a life of surrender to his love. That says, Lord Jesus, if you say jump, I want to say how high. Lord Jesus, if you say go, I want to go. Because Jesus is Lord, that, that's got to be the center of everything we're doing as a church family. Why do we go into the schools to serve and to mentor and to share the gospel? Because Jesus is Lord. Why is Chauncey leading the team into those public schools week after week? Because Jesus is Lord. Why is Morgan leading the charge with some of y'all at St. Paul's and we trying to raise all the money to take care of, you know, to give an excellent Christian education to kids in our community? Somebody tell me why. You got it. You got it. That's going to be the answer to all the questions I'm about to ask, just if you're a little sleepy still. On time change Sunday. Why do we keep going into those apartment complexes when it's cold and knocking on doors and inviting people to Bible study? You got it. Why do, do Reed and Clarissa and his team keep working hard to take care of vulnerable people who wouldn't have access to health care? Why do some of y'all get here early to set up and serve behind the scenes and do all the stuff, church family? It's all because he's Lord. And if we'll trust him... And walk with him. Sometimes it's going to involve sacrifice. Sometimes it's going to involve difficulty. But those who have built their life on the rock. And have survived every storm. Like John Perkins. Can look back and say. He is worth it. And 
he is worthy. I want to invite you to stand with us now. We're going to sing one more song. Actually, we're about to sing two more songs to the Lord in response to the word. And we're singing two songs to give you time, parents, to go get your kids from Children's Church so that the children and the Children's Church workers can come celebrate this baptism with us. But first, we're taking this moment. And before we sing, I just want to do like we usually do and just take a moment to pause. I'm just going to be silent for a moment, and I'm going to ask you to pray. And, and here would be my encouragement to you. Just ask the, the Lord to show you, what are the areas of my heart and my life that you're calling me to yield more completely to your Lordship? Where are the areas that you're wanting me to give you control? And whatever he brings to mind, the invitation is say, it's yours, Lord, I surrender. It's yours, I surrender. Whatever it is God's bringing to mind, church, I just want to say sometimes we just get so afraid. If I surrender to that, what's going to happen? But here's what you can know. Jesus knows you better than you know yourself, and he loves you more than you love yourself. If you surrender to him, he's going to be worth it. This, this surrendering to the lordship of Jesus is a lifetime thing, which means if you, you're here, you've been a Christian for 40 years, there's still the same call, surrender. Confess Jesus as Lord, but I also want to speak to anybody here who you came spiritually seeking and you don't know if you're right with God. Here's the thing. You don't have to earn God's love. You don't have to earn his acceptance. He offers you the free gift of eternal life. All you got to do is surrender and say, Jesus is Lord. If you want to take that step today, we would love to talk with you about how you can begin a life of obedience and faithfulness as a Christian. Father, I pray for my church family here as we're in your presence now. We confess our sins. There's been many times, Jesus, that we have rebelled against your lordship. And we regret them. Lord, our rebellion has proved that obedience is better than rebellion. So we ask that you would forgive us. We ask that you would cleanse us. We ask that you would fill us again with your Holy Spirit. And Jesus, we surrender to you. You are worthy of all our worship. So we give it to you. We ask that you would empower us for re-energized obedience, Lord. Those who are part of our church family today and are traveling or elsewhere, we ask that you would bless them and strengthen them too, that we'd be a people wholly consecrated to you. And all of these things we pray in the name of Jesus.